Fowley, and this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Happy to say that today's episode is episode number 40, and I'm really pleased to welcome former colleague and all-around mensch, Brian Becker, to the program today. So, hey, Matt. <laughs> hey, Brian. Good to see you. It's been a while. Nice to be here. Thank you. I feel yeah, like uh, you never quite make it in either music or research unless you make it onto the rock and roll research <laughs> podcast. And here I am. So it only took 40 episodes, I guess, but well, yeah, no, I'm excited. I forced my way on. So, <laughs> okay. So let me say a couple words about Brian, right? Then we'll jump into it. Uh, so Brian, he spent the past 13 years at the global research powerhouse Ipsos, where he has risen actually from an associate research analyst about 13 years ago, back in the day, uh, to the senior, senior vice president, where he leads Ipsos's innovation and market strategy service line for the West Coast US. I remember meeting Brian back in New Jersey, uh, I guess a few years ago, and the conversation quickly talked to music. I can attest that Brian can play a mean bass guitar. <laughs> and I think it's really cool that he uh, took advantage of the pandemic to write and record an album with some other players. I've heard some of it and it's great stuff. And uh, I'm looking forward to having uh, Brian talk all about that and research and more on today's podcast. So, so welcome again, Brian. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Cool. So let's, let's, talk, let's talk research first, right? So yeah. your whole career has been in research. What, what was been. the lure and, and what, what's kept you around? I, I actually wanted to get into advertising. Uh, I had a cousin who I kind of looked up to and, you know, took me to his, his uh, shop once and, you know, the bouncy ball chairs and uh, the techno music blaring. I was like, man, I, I want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, did a couple of interviews and, um, you know, it, it was paying significantly less in, in New York City. And I had an opportunity, uh, I went to University of Rhode Island, which is not a school known for research by any means, but had a uh, internship at a small firm uh, in Edgewater, New Jersey, and uh, kind of got my first taste of market research. It was a little bit unconventional, um, was working for a tobacco company, and uh, another company was working in sexual lubricants. So uh, it was a little bit bizarre to kind of get into that space. And I remember, uh, you know, rolling up uh, to seeing some of the clients come out of a cab from New York City and, you know, engulfed in smoke and they were smoking in the office and, uh, you know, and it was just bizarre. But ever since that, I, I, I've always been a problem solver and uh, never really good at, at uh, you know, tests or the academic stuff, but it's something just synced with research and being able to kind of systematically, you know, think about a question and how to go about answering it. That kind of scientific process to me just always really resonated. And, um, graduated school and was told about Ipsos from a headhunter and said it was underqualified. I kind of went behind the headhunter's back and wrote <laughs> a, a cover letter uh, to the hiring manager and they got me in for an interview. And uh, I'll just say the funniest thing about the interview was uh, it was for a forecasting job, uh -huh. zero experience in forecasting. And uh, the hiring manager at the time sat me down and they said, you know, uh, forecast how many hot dogs are going to be uh, consumed on the 4th of July. And I said, well, you got to start, you know, by thinking about what's the population of the U.S. They said, great. Yeah. What's the population? I was like, 3 million. And then I panicked and I said, 6 million, you know, and they're like, how about 303 million? So my, my doubling the answer didn't really work. 
And uh, I guess I did okay because I, I got the job, but I remember going home to my parents that night and saying, uh, oh man, you know, I, I think I bombed this interview. I said there was like 3 million people in the US and, and my dad was like, there's 3 million people in Mars County, you idiot, you know? So, um, and the rest is kind of history. So yeah, I, I've been at Ipsos for a long time and, and uh, you know, maybe a bit unconventional, but um, ha have taken on a lot of different roles. Always wanted to live on the West Coast, got the opportunity yeah. to do that. and focus in tech, uh, which I've been doing in the last six or seven years, which has been awesome. So uh, a lot of great opportunities and experience. So yeah, didn't, didn't plan on it, just ended here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I really like and appreciate about Ipsos is they're one of the companies that still hires people out of school, um, expends, you know, a lot of time and effort training up good people um, and uh, and, you know, promotes people within your organization. And that, that seems to certainly uh, describe your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a byproduct of that and, and grateful for it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. So, so let's, let's talk about the good stuff, right? So, yeah. So you play the four string. Um, I'm going to forego all sorts of bass player jokes because, <laughs> uh, because I love, I love bass, you know, I appreciate it quite a bit. So, so how did, how did you get into that? And I know that you've, you've never really kind of let that go. That's, that's, that's part of what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my brother-in-law who I played with for a long time, he used to joke with me and said, you know, how many uh, bass players does it take to change a light bulb? And I asked him how many, and he said, none, the organ player can do it with their left hand. So that's always <laughs> like, you know, kind of where, where I was perceived at, but yeah, I, I'm actually uh, uh, classically trained. I, I picked uh, up cello in the third grade. And the reason I picked cello over any other instrument was because you got to sit down. So uh, all the violinists were standing up. I said, man, these, these shows are like, you know, three hours. I, I want to sit down. So uh, I picked the cello and uh, that got me into the, the low end and the bass clef. And um, you know, through that time, I played a little bit of upright bass, uh, I taught myself viola, um, and I kind of took a, a bit of a break through college, um, just, you know, kind of got out of it. It was probably my biggest regret that I think I did in, in my musical career. And then um, kind of funny that uh, the woman who I married has two older sisters, both of which married amazing musicians, well, well right. above my level. Uh, her dad's a musician as well. And we all played different instruments. So my one brother-in-law was an organ player in a reggae band. He's opened up for Toots and the Maytals and wow. uh, the Whalers. He's played the Newport Reggae Fest, like amazing talent. My other brother-in-law was like a, a guitar player in a gypsy jazz band in Washington, D.C., playing for diplomats, just unbelievably skilled. Uh, and my father-in-law is a really good drummer and played for a long time, like in the 70s and 80s. So we used to get together up at their lake house in Vermont and started jamming. And um, they had an acoustic bass up there. I remember I just started playing. And I remember going back and just saying, like, I want to get back into this and, and play it. So I, I bought a $100 Ibanez acoustic bass and, yeah. and started jamming out. Just kind of, I, I've always been trained just listening by ear. Uh, my theory really sucks. So uh, I just kind of dove back in. And I tell you, it was they were playing jazz and blues and um, it was so different from classical where, you know, I kept asking like, where's the sheet music? You know, yeah. like <laughs> you're giving me these chords, but the you know, what can I chord to chord? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that was really challenging uh, and I loved it. And I just dove into it. And, and from there um, where I really started getting into it was just, uh, I actually met a uh, guy, Fred Church, who was a VP at the time at Ipsos and, 
just like you and I started talking, you know, probably one night after drinks or like, oh man, you're, you're playing music. I said, yeah, it's impossible to find people to play with. And him and I and a buddy of mine who was a drummer started just jamming up in his attic. Yeah. And we started playing uh, Beastie Boys instrumentals, uh, just oh, nice. like Sound From Way Out and uh, and that kind of stuff. And, and we loved it. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget this, that one day, there's this guy walking down the street playing acoustic guitar. And we're like, who's that guy? And Fred goes, we call him Guitar Dad. And I was like, who is this guy? And he's like, he just goes up and down the street with his two kids playing acoustic guitar. So I stopped what we were doing. I ran outside. I went to him. I said, my name is Brian. I got two other guys up in my buddy's house here. Do you want to come? We need a lead guitarist. Do you want to come play with us? <laughs> and he was like, yes, I heard you guys playing. Like, I've been out here, like I was wondering who was going to, you know, say something. So um, <laughs> it, it was kind of ridiculous. And, you know, we started covering Rolling Stones and, you know, Credence and the meters and uh, just all over the place, just a bunch of guys having fun in an attic. And um, from there, we kind of met this network of musicians in New Jersey, uh, one of which was a guy who started writing original music. And I just kind of fell in with him and like 35 originals later, um, yeah. you know, we played together for five or six years with, with our buddy Fred and, and with another drummer. And, um, and so that, that was kind of my, my gig for a long time. And it was amazing. You know, we, yeah. we played out occasionally, but it, it, that was kind of stressful. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with, it started to feel like a little bit, um, that it, it, we just never did it that often because it, it just never felt right. But I mean, you know, a couple of guys getting together, drinking some beers and hanging out in a basement and writing music. And, um, and this guy was a song factory. I mean, I've just never seen anybody crank out as much as he did. And we all kind of vibed together. So when I moved to California, it was tough. Uh, I, I, I couldn't really find a gig out here and COVID hit and we're all sitting at home during lockdown. And um, that's when we started kind of exchanging ideas and uh, the guys I played with were a bit older. So I had to like, I said, you know, let's do something. So um, I sent him a little recording interface and I learned GarageBand, which yep. is pretty easy, but kind of intimidating. Right. And um, we just started sending ideas back and forth. And I was like, man, we need more. And uh, my my uh, brother-in-law who plays guitar, I, I shot him this stuff and he was totally pumped about it. And he started doing lead guitar and other licks. And I mean, the great thing about recording in the digital space is like, it sucks you're not there with people, but you just, I mean, you could just keep adding and adding and adding tracks. So yep. um, we kind of went through that process for a while and he even added drums and stuff like that. The hardest thing is that our guitar player doesn't play with a metronome. So, I mean, trying to like, oh, yeah. it's fine when you're jamming, but like when you're trying to put a record together, yeah. uh, it was a little bit difficult. Especially but. when everybody's in different places and everything. Exactly, yeah. 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 So it's like, all right, we're speeding up here. We're slowing down, you know, but uh, right. I mean, I had just zero experience of doing that. I have hardcore red light uh, anxiety as well when that recording yeah. button's on. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we, um, we, we put about 10 tracks together, I think, like with the bonus track, which was probably my favorite track on the album was this uh, track called La Playa, which was like a kind of like a Spanish, you know, just really weird. I mean, everything was like all over the place. Yeah, And the reason we did it that way is just because we had so many different tastes and stuff. And we kind of put it together as a joke. But at the same time, we're like, if somebody likes 15 seconds of one of the songs, that's like all you could hope for, you know, and, yeah. and uh, 
so we put it out on Spotify and a bunch of stuff. And uh, it was it was awesome. It was great connecting with uh, our, our lead guitar player and my brother-in-law have never even met each other. Right. Uh, and, and put together, you know, it's amazing what music will do, you know, in that yeah. kind of sense. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. Is it okay if I, I link to your Spotify record? Oh, yeah, 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 you can. I would say have low expectations for the <laughs> uh, production quality and, and overall uh, overall quality of the record. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, so so you started playing music young, right? Then you got into research. Yeah. So you've, you've had both these sides of your brain working for some time. Uh, are there any similarities or maybe lessons you've learned on one side that you could apply to the other? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, my staff laughs at me all the time. I, I talk a lot of, uh, in terms of like metaphors or trying to connect, you know, things that we're going through to other things in life. And I use a lot of musical references and I think right. half of them just, you know, just goes right <laughs> over the head. They're like, what the hell is Brian talking about? You know, but um, I tell you like learning jazz is, is um, it's, it's like research in so many ways. And, and it is fine. I mean, you and I, you know, played, uh, you know, we've both played music in, in different spaces and we've met, I mean, obviously you've had a ton of people on your podcast in the same way. And I think uh, what I've resonated with a lot of people that you've talked to is that, you know, music is all about communication. You know, er everyone's talking through, you know, the instruments and stuff that they have, and you're not exactly sure what the other person's going to say, but it all kind of works out in the end. And I think like, you know, there's a framework there, but, you know, you never really play the same song the same way every time right and so you know research is like that and it's i think it's a it, it's evolving even more like that where you know we've got all different types of frameworks but more and more of the business questions that get thrown at us are so challenging that it you know it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach it's not playing the same song over and over again there's there's a need to kind of improv and roll with that and have an open dialogue with clients and how to do that so it's a little bit cliche but i think like the biggest thing that music's taught me is there's a systematic way from point A to point B, mm -hmm. you know, there's the framework, but how you get there is kind of up to you and how you play the song and who you partner with and what that sounds like and how it evolves is completely dependent on everyone who you play with and who's involved. And, and what I love about that is, is like, you know, that's why we're always looking for new talent. That's why we're always looking for new people to partner with, whether it's with the clients that we work with, or even with people on our internal teams, because each person brings kind of their own, style you know to the equation and that changes what the overall song is going to be you know what project you initiate and how that goes so right. it, in, in a weird way it's that kind of systematic approach to problem solving and research to me feels very similar to like how i've kind of approached music and written music and produced music you know yeah that's that's really cool i can relate with a whole lot of what you're saying um, <laughs> i really i really agree with that um and so one thing I remembered about working uh, at Ipsos uh, with you was a lot of times when there was like a really thorny problem to solve, like how do you <laughs> approach this? Um, I got the answer several times. You know what? You should really talk to Brian Becker about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm really curious. I mean, you've been working in innovation and forecasting and things like that for, for some time. Um, you probably had a chance to peer a little bit into the future. Um, yeah. What 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 does that look like? What's what's going to be important going forward? Man, it's it's changing so fast. You know, from a technological standpoint, from a needs of what clients want, um, from who we can trust and how many of those people we can trust that's out there, and how do we spot genuine responses and people are who they say they are. 
I mean, I, I think the biggest trend that we're seeing now is, is this kind of social commerce space. And it's, you know, how these big social media companies and giants get into the resale space or don't, you know, I mean, they have right. these sophisticated algorithms and um, there's so much trend around. Uh, it, it's interesting, like particularly being in technology where, you know, the latest innovations coming out from so many companies just doesn't really get consumers excited in the way that it used to. And it's not that people aren't looking for new products, but the new products that are out there are just kind of different. You know, a lot of them are iterations of what's happened in the past, but I think what's really changing in the space is more so how people will shop for things kind of moving forward. And so we're looking a lot into, you know, new and creative techniques and methodologies in terms of looking into that space. You know, how does AR and 5G play a role, uh, augmented reality, how does that play a role in, um, how people will shop, how they envision things in their home, how it makes a decision on how they react to an advertisement that's being shown. And like our research can't be survey and question and answer kind of stuff moving forward. It's got to be more progressive than that. So right. I think that that theme is huge. And just the other piece of it is, um, you know, just kind of calibrating to like getting research to be more actionable. I think, you know, we've got to get away from black boxes and we've got to get away from, you um, what, you know, methodologies that are too complicated for our clients to explain to their stakeholders. People need research sure. fast. It, it's always going to be something that every client needs, but I kind of biased a bit in, from a forecasting side. I think we're getting a lot more into like unconventional forecasting. So right. different ways and how people are getting the message out there, how they contact consumers uh, with advertising. It's not traditional advertising anymore. It's, you know, it's media spend and it's all over the place with that. And it's figuring out how that connects to conversion of eyeballs to then conversion of doing something about it to then purchasing, um, you know, that line's getting really blurry and it's getting a lot more difficult to accurately figure out how to do that. And I think, you know, we used to be kind of this consultative team that, you know, we would dictate to clients how we would do things. And I think now where that's progressing at where it will be is, you know, us really evolving to a space where we're working with clients more hand in hand to kind of figure out what that process is moving forward because they're changing the way that they're advertising the people and getting them to see different products and things as much as we're trying to figure out how the hell we forecast that, um, yeah. you know, putting together in the research space, so. Yeah, yeah, just think about the multiplicity of channels and <laughs> data that's yeah. available and, so so many complicating variables it's uh it's good to have people like you working in that space uh that's no easy task for sure yeah some days are easier than others that's for sure but, uh <laughs> it keep, keeps the brain sharp so you know i don't think any researcher out there can complain right now about you know the stuff that's getting thrown at them which is you know it's a good space to be in so yeah yeah, yeah cool all right, so so this is a podcast, right? Um, yeah, you know, I'm sure that there are other podcasts that you listen to, either uh, for professional inspiration or insight, or or maybe personal. I'll open it up. You know, what's what's uh, what's on your playlist? Yeah, I mean, uh, from a podcast perspective, uh, just kind of the cliche has been I've been obsessed with TED Talks lately, yeah. um, and there's there's been a lot of great ones, particularly around you know with COVID and everything, with employee retention and um, talking about how to give you know just better engagement with employees, kind of beyond compensation. That was an awesome TED Talk that I saw. I forget right. who the person was who was right. talking about it, but um, that was big. Right now. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of across the board. And I think um, uh, there's the, obviously the Rock and Roll Research Podcast. I've been a fan <laughs> of this show, so it's been great being on it. But uh, I think it's great what you've done with this platform. And it's awesome to see other people that have kind of similar views um, and, and have kind of come up in really different ways, but we all have kind of common links in, in thinking through stuff and, and working with clients. And on the other side, I mean, personally, I've been uh, really into kind of the true crime stuff. I, yeah. I just listened and completed uh, S-Town, which was kind of uh, like Providence in the 70s and 80s and uh, into the 90s with Buddy Sandy and the corruption with the Italian mob and stuff. That was like, just took a plane for the first time a few weeks ago. And so that was kind of my my binge on the, on the plane, which is good. Yeah. So, um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of been in on the podcast front. So you told me you've seen a couple of these episodes, right? Um, and so you know what's coming, you know what's coming. <laughs> my favorite question. <laughs> it's, my, it's my tune, it's also the hardest, right? Yeah. Uh, so I have a clue as to what at least one of your answers might be based on the attire, <laughs> uh, but we'll see, you might surprise me. So I gotta ask, I gotta know, I gotta know, Brian, you're stranded on a desert island. You've got three records at your disposal, you're choosing yeah. any three records to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are those records? Yeah, I had to pick some out from the collection here. Huge record collector. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, Closet Deadhead, I guess, or maybe not Closet Deadhead, but I'm <laughs> obsessed with the Grateful now, yeah. Dead. The... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe the first obvious answer was, uh, this is uh, Grateful Dead, Buffalo, 1977. Uh, yes. Probably one of the best shows I think they ever made and uh, just came out on Record Store Day. Uh, not too long ago, I was able to grab okay. a copy, which was awesome. Um, so I came prepared here. I, I have my three that is here. So this is uh, Parliament wow. Funkadelic, live from Madison Square Garden, 1977. I saw these guys probably eight times at BB King's in New York City before they uh, uh, before BB King's closed down, and it was just like the most mind blowing concerts I've ever been to in my life. How they sub different musicians out, and just it yeah. was just like insane and, cool. and the last cool. one um this was uh this is d'angelo live at the jazz cafe i think it was 1997 or 1998 yeah um totally out there and just didn't expect to be blown away by that album and it like changed my life in so many different ways i mean uh he played with the soul carrions which i i'm probably butchering that name but you know those guys have played back up on the roots and um, yeah. Beastie Boys and all kinds of different uh, albums. And uh, he played with those guys. D'Angelo's like, I think one of the most talented, you know, kind of R&B soul guys out there. So I, I picked albums that I knew would be really long. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm going to be on that island for a long time. So it's something I got to tolerate and deal with for a while. So yeah. <laughs> There's always got to be a rationale, right? Um, I yeah. agree with that one. So mine are sort of double albums when I put my, my head to it. So um, really cool. I, you've given me some some stuff to check out. Uh, that absolutely album sounds cool. Uh, I love the visual aid, of course. I'm a, I'm a vinyl guy also, so <laughs> I appreciate Excellent. that. Yeah, I had to flex some of the vinyl for sure. <laughs> All right, super cool. Well, uh, it's great catching up as always, Brian. Uh, super excited to have you uh, have you here and tell your story. It's a great opportunity to reconnect. So thanks so much. Rock and roll. Hey, rock and roll, baby. Thanks, yeah. Matt. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. <laughs> <laughs>